Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to the second year of Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible, including those who swim to grin at surf-skimming fin and smooth blubbery skin. I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. And this Friday, if you find yourself in Wigtown, in Galloway, southern Scotland, you can come along to the open book and participate in a live Golden Eagle-centric recording of Trees A Crowd. Head along to our Twitter feed, at Trees A Crowd Pod, for all the details. Right, we're kicking off this second season with a hero of mine. Mark Carwardine, in his own words, is an outspoken conservationist. He's an award-winning writer and presenter. He's spent a career alongside bears, rhinos and the world's most endangered species. But he initially became known to me as the companion to Douglas Adams as they travelled the world in search of some of the planet's rarest species in Last Chance to See. Mark was in London at the tail end of last year to support the Wildlife Photographer of the Year Awards, something he has chaired for seven years, and our aim was to conduct the interview nearby in a quiet hotel lobby. Bursting with questions, I set up my recording equipment, which failed, but my backup equipment in place, we were then plagued by guests checking in and the endless cacophonous noise of lifts pinging and the suitcases being trundled to and fro. We tried recording in the bar, a stairwell, a bedroom augmented by an ensuite building development, but eventually we found relative tranquillity alongside the serpentine, as far from the tractor mowing the lawn and the noisy squirrel feeding Taurus as we could get, at least for as long as the rain held off. So, without further ado, this is Mark Carwardine, and this is year two of Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh Right, we're sitting on the banks of the serpentine I mean, for the... Is this the fourth attempt or the third attempt yes. at this interview? Yes, what can go wrong? Everything can go wrong <laughs> um, I'm sitting here with Mark Carwardine and what you can hear in the background is a helicopter that is almost certainly spying on the Extinction Rebellion over in Trafalgar Square. Nice place to be, lots of birds on the water. It is. What we've got is some Canada geese over there. Yeah, lots of coots, black-headed gulls, mute swans. It's lovely. Yeah, it's good. London in its finest. I was telling um, my partner the other day that there are pelicans in London and she wouldn't believe me. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, they just go, go and have a look down in, in St James's. Yeah, there are. Is it St James's? Yeah, nice. yeah there are, St James's Park. Um, so there you go, birds. Um, do you like birds? I like all animals. <laughs> do you know, it's interesting that because there's something about just being with nature and, and um, we're learning more and more about how this is good for people. We know that pet dogs and cats are good for people. You know, They take mm-hmm. them around care homes and it calms everybody. For me, just seeing a bird or anything is, is, gives me a good feeling. There's a green woodpecker that often sits on my office windowsill mm-hmm. and I can't tell you how much pleasure that gives me. <laughs> you know, I can be having a really bad day and I look up and there's a green woodpecker and I think, oh yeah, everything's alright. Do you find, I mean, you travel extensively for work. Mm. I mean, you obviously therefore can't have pets as such. Do you find that you sort well, of... Well, we do have a dog actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, my partner looks after it when I'm away. But yeah. you never see it? I don't see it. I do see it, I, I do see it sometimes. It's, it's just fantastic having an animal around the house. Yeah. It just makes you feel better. We didn't have pets as a kid, so 
I've always said that that's where my interest in the natural world started because I'd find a dead mole in the garden <laughs> and that would be my pet for the week until it got that's putrefied. So <laughs> well, I mean, then I had loads of pet maggots. So, I mean, it's, it's all... <laughs> yes, we've all done that, haven't we? <laughs> the worrying thing is pretty much everyone I've interviewed for this podcast has done that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so, take me back to your childhood. Did you have pets when you were growing up? Um, yes, we, well, I was brought up in uh, Luton, which mm. gave me the travel bug. And we were brought up with cats, but I, I sort of rescued animals. So, you know, in the garden shed, we had, uh, I remember there was a collar dove with a broken wing. There was an adder and a grass snake and lots of mice and frogs and mm-hmm. anything I'd found that needed rescuing, I'd look after it. So I spent a lot of my childhood running a mini zoo, really, and then trying to release things Mark's with varying menagerie. successes. Um, so, yeah, it was surrounded by animals. My parents weren't that interested in animals, or they, they became interested as I did, but encouraged me, and that was all I really wanted to do. Do you think... I, I've, I've often thought that we sort of follow more on the footprints of our grandparents, so sort of everything sort of skips a generation, in the same way that the current adult generation is ruining the planet, the current children generation is saving the planet. Yeah. Do you think that because your parents weren't particularly that way inclined, it meant that you became that way inclined? Maybe it did, although my brother didn't. <laughs> so, Van Gogh's that theory. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's funny how, um, you know, some people just love wildlife, have done all their lives. Others don't even notice it. I'm sure there are people walking along the serpentine here, chatting away. They don't even notice that there's a whole bunch of black-headed gulls fighting and squabbling over something in the water yeah. there. Or you know, It doesn't register with lots of people. I've never really understood how that could be. I've become recently more fascinated in what lies beneath the surface of water. I went fishing off the um, Californian coast not so long ago and the different species that we were bringing mm. up was just unbelievable. That's my big passion is diving and you know, most of the planet is seawater of course, mm-hmm. 70% or more is seawater and uh, we know less about what's under there than we do on the surface of the moon. It's a cliche but it's true. We, we, it's an incredibly difficult area to study and to me that's what makes it so interesting there's things we're discovering all the time had no idea existed Mm -hmm. and just piecing together the jigsaw of the wildlife that lives under the water there what's the most interesting thing that you have personally found under the water oh my goodness that's such a difficult question um so many i mean i think the most moving experiences have been snorkeling with big whales Uh and uh humpback whales for example you can snorkel with a humpback whale and it'll come right up to you, as close as we are now, a couple uh-huh. of feet away, and uh, investigate you. And they've got these great long flippers, like five-metre-long flippers, and they'll bring them into their body so they don't knock you with their flippers. They're super gentle. And yet, if you watch humpback whales on the mating grounds, the males will fight uh-huh. over the females. They'll breach and land on top of one well, you another. You see all those scars they yeah, get they, as a they, they really injure one another sometimes. And, and yet, with people in the water, they're so gentle. It's, it, you can't help but... You know, be moved by that kind of experience. Why do you think that is? Do you think they see a, a common ancestor? Do they? I mean, this is all hypothetical. I don't know. It's like with killer whales. You know, killer whales. There's only ever been one attack by killer whales on people in the wild. They attack people in captivity, which is different. Uh-huh. Um, they attacked a surfer in California in the 70s, bit him on the leg, and spat him out. But I've snorkeled with killer whales many times, and they nothing. They don't. They're not. You know. Admittedly, most of them have been. Um, see, that's a nice interruption, isn't it? <laughs> They've been um, mostly. I don't know fish anyone who's been attacked whales. by a black-headed gull before. <laughs> <laughs> but even um, you know the meat-eating killer whales, they don't attack people. And uh-huh. 
it's nice to think oh they can relate to us and be anthropomorphic and think oh they can see there's some affinity and so on probably even in my case not fat enough to make it worth worth eating. the effort I mean we don't know you can feel them echolocating and and checking you out and they're certainly inquisitive they investigate everything in their envir- in their environment um, and they will eat almost anything from a blue whale down to a little porpoise but um, but they what they're making of us, we, we don't know. There was an amazing footage recently of a manta ray with a, a hook in its eye, mm-hmm. seemingly seeking out a diver to help get it out. Now, we know even less about manta rays than some of the main species of whale. Although we do know rays have got particularly big brains. They've got bigger brains for the body size and more complex brains than, than um, other fish. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't be a long stretch to think maybe it's actually thinking that through sure. and thinking maybe it can get some help so one of the things you do at the moment is you run I guess a ho- a holiday trips, tourist trips off mm. the Mexican coast mm. to go whale watching and you see grey whales and blue whales and sperm whales and you have a sort of like a rare permit as I understand it to... yes there's two boats with permission to do these trips we set off in San Diego, we travel all down the Baja California Peninsula on the Pacific coast of Mexico we have two weeks of whale watching and I, I, this year was I did my 68th trip wow. doing those trips and I still got off on the, that last one thinking oh my god this is an amazing place <laughs> it's, it's just one of those places where you see whales and dolphins every day uh, there's one spot called San Ignacio Lagoon where grey whales go to breed and um, you get mothers with calves and they come right up to the little boat so we, we have a sort of mothership and then we have to go into little boats mm-hmm. um, to go and greet them and you go out in the lagoon and they'll come right up and you get a 45 foot you know 15 metre whale alongside the boat lying upside down wanting you to scratch its tummy and it'll rest its chin on the side of the boat and the mothers will sometimes push the calves up because you'd expect the calves to be the ones wanting to play uh-huh. but often they're a bit nervous and the mothers force them to play lift them out of the water and you played, and they wriggle and get back in, and gradually they get to enjoy it and get used to it. And then they, as they get older, come right up to the boats, and they'll open their mouths. And you can tickle their baleen plates. It's amazing. Do experience. you recognise the same individuals coming back? Do you know we, there were some that are very uh, recognisable, and there was one with a great big white sort of disc below its dorsal fin. I've been seeing for years. Mm-hmm. And then I was in Russia last year off the Chukotka coast, where they go to feed. And blow me down, I saw this whale. The same whale I've so been from seeing Mexico in San Ignacio, all the way up to... yeah, six and a half, seven thousand miles away. That's incredible. And I'd flown this convoluted route all through Russia, and the whale had swum, and there it was feeding off the coast of Chukotka. It didn't recognise me, which is good, but I recognised it. Oh, I'm sure it did. <laughs> <laughs> it's that guy again. Oh, I, I tried to get away with him. I'll I came all, all this, this way. way. Yeah. Um, so what started you doing those? Was I mean, you've written one incredibly successful book about whales. You've written loads of other slightly less successful books about oh, whales. <laughs> but you've written a million books about whales, and you've got a new one coming out mm-hmm. soon about whales, dolphins, and porpoises, which will hopefully shadow all of those into insignificance. <laughs> Did these trips... There's a lot of sarcasm in the air here. <laughs> <laughs> I blame the current political climate. Do you? It's, yeah. it's sort of bled okay. into the system. Yeah. Um, do you, did you start doing these trips in order to do more research? or um, To be honest, it was an excuse to spend more time with whales and okay. to be with people who love whales. I, I love... There's something about being on a boat. We have, like, 27 people on the boat and everybody's passionate about whales. Everybody wants to be there. Everyone gets excited about them. And I love being with that sort of person, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, there's nothing better than spending the whole day 
with whales and dolphins and enjoying it with all these other people and reminiscing about it at night and then you wake up the next day and start all over again it's a it's a fantastic way of spending a couple of weeks and of course from a personal point of view I'm also getting a lot of new information because every time we go out we see something we haven't seen before some behavior or even a new species do you find that the people on the boats become extra sets of eyes for you so oh yeah definitely I mean they're very easy to miss um remember doing a a piece for blue planet live a couple of years ago and i was doing inserts for the series and we were looking for blue whales off the coast of mexico best place in the world for blue whales Mm -hmm. hadn't seen one all day and so we thought well we'll do a piece to camera and just um talk about how difficult it is to find them this is a whale that is the biggest animal ever to have lived on earth it's it's roughly the length of a boeing 737 Mm -hmm. you know how how do you not find one of those we'd been there all day got to late afternoon okay we'll do a piece and i was saying you know these whales spend most of their lives underwater and even though we know there are probably a couple of thousand on this stretch of coast we haven't found any very frustrating we know they're out there and finish the piece of camera look away whale surfaces right in front of the boat no warning whatsoever and there's a blue whale and it sort of brought home the fact that you can be right there with them and, and still miss them. And so the more eyes looking, the better. What's your favourite whale? Ooh, whatever whale I'm looking at at the time <laughs> is the honest answer. I, I, if I had to pick one, it would probably be the narwhal, which is okay, the, the yeah, whale yeah, with, with the, the big... great long tusk. Tusk can be 10 feet long, and they're hard to find. You've got to go to the high Arctic, you've got to camp on the ice edge and watch them swimming by. And, Am and I so right on, in so. thinking it's technically a tooth? That's yeah, been... it's a canine tooth. Uh, that occasionally in females, nearly always in males, it just grows out through the upper lip, spirals out, keeps growing. Um, and for a long time, we didn't know what it was for. There have been some fantastic theories. I mean, because it spirals, one theory was it comes up to the ice from underneath and spins around and sort of drills its way out of the ice, sure. which obviously is not true. Another great one is it uses to spear fish. If you think about that. It's got to have a very long tongue to get the yeah. fish off the end, so don't ever French kiss a narwhal if that's true. But what we know now is that... Um, <laughs> I was going to do that this weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, we now know that it's, they use it like deer antlers, so they actually test of strength, and you can see them at the surface sort of pushing against one another's tusks to, to test the strength, and, and it's all to do with courtship and females, as most of these things are. Amazing. So when was your first whale encounter? Well, I remember I used to, when I was doing a zoology degree, I took a, a summer off and I was mowing lawns in California uh-huh. as, a, as a sort of way of getting some money and some fun. And I took half a day off and went on a whale watching trip. And I remember we saw nothing for the first couple of hours, just really quiet. And then suddenly, with no warning, this grey whale breached. It leapt out of the water, it was about 20 feet away from me, just happened to be standing right there and almost swallowed my tongue. And uh-huh. I remember, even now, and I've seen them breach hundreds, thousands of times since. I still see this whale, you know, we're talking about a 45-foot whale, 30, 35 tonnes, launching out of the water, almost like in slow motion, landing with a big splash. And I remember looking at it thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to be with whales. And so I've been very lucky to spend lots of my life with whales. I, I've been trying to come on your trip for a number of years now. You've lost all those deposits in all those years. So much money that I've given over to <laughs> conservation efforts of whales. Yes, that's of very true. Selfless, yeah. selfless magnanimity. Um, the first time I went whale watching was off uh, Vancouver Island. We mm-hmm. went killer whale watching. See a pod up there, and I spent pretty much my entire time glued to a video camera filming it. So I've got a wonderful video, but I can't remember any of it. Really, that's really sad, I, isn't it? And I've sort of been waiting to go back and do it properly again, so hopefully I will get a chance to. 
but I have sort of swum with porpoises, a few species of dolphin and rays and the like, and there's something about being in a different environment. I think that's the thing that really hit me, was not being on the land, being mm-hmm. in their domain, and them being able to choose to approach you on their terms and their world, which just floors me. And there is something about them. It's, it's, I remember doing a trip years ago to the Bahamas, and it was snorkeling with dolphins, spotted dolphins. We had a group of eight of us. And um, we were there for a week, and these dolphins were with us all day, every day. An amazing experience. Uh, but they were all focused on this one lady in the group, driving us nuts. We couldn't work out what was going on. We, we all wanted attention too. Mm-hmm. And we sort of had to just watch as they, they swam around this lady, day in, day out. And we had no idea what was going on. Anyway, a while after we got back, I got a message from her saying that she's pregnant. And oh, wow. she didn't know, but the dolphins knew. With their they, sonar, they yeah, sort of buzzed they her. They actually like ultrasound. They can see what's inside. They could tell that she was pregnant. I'm sure this is what was happening. Uh-huh. And uh, they were just interested in her. You know, it's, it's amazing what they're capable of. They, they, we must seem like prehistoric dinosaurs to dolphins, the things they do and understand, and we're just scratching the surface. Is there any particular research we're doing at the moment that you're excited about to illuminate our understanding of them? Like... Oh, a huge amount of stuff going on. I mean... Um, a lot of space-age technology to study them. So in the old days, I mean, the old days, I'm talking 20, 25 years ago, we used to go out in boats and look through binoculars and make notes, like the old traditional mm-hmm. field techniques. Now we're using um, high-tech hydrophones and we're using um, these amazing things you can attach to the whales and follow them by satellite. And when they dive, you can measure their heart rate and the water temperature and all sorts of amazing stuff. So literally in the last 10 years, we've probably learned more than we've ever known before. And the new information coming to light is uh, its hard to keep up with it all. There's scientific papers published. I mean, I read for this book that's coming out next month, I read, I reckon, just under 12,000 scientific papers. Um, And I still didn't get to read all the others that are out there. Our knowledge is growing exponentially. Talking of water. Talking of water, we're now getting rained on. (laughs) What a day. What a day. It was all going so well. I think this is about to get a lot heavier as well, isn't it? I think it it is, yes. We're going to get soaked. Okay, well, we're slightly drier now. (laughs) (laughs) Almost. Um, So you went to university in Regent's Park? Yes, yes. It was uh, the college no longer exists now, called uh, Bedford College, part of London University. And at the time, uh, a long time ago, there were only a few universities that did pure zoology. And I'm glad I went there. It was a wonderful college and all the lecturers were were super keen on their subjects and you know the whole whole um, group of us didn't just do the zoology course we'd Mm -hmm. go bat counting in the evenings and bird watching at weekends and it was a life of wildlife why did you go into zoology and not into i don't know veterinary science into well i did when i was 15 i did work at a vet's one summer but they made me sit with animals while they were being put down all the time and it put me off for life um, I think it's wildlife and being out in nature, out in the wilds. I love just being in wilderness areas. That, that's what really does it for me. Okay. Um, so I'm asking questions I've already asked you because we've had to move locations all the time. So oh, I don't suppose you met anyone interesting when you just graduated and you were in the insect uh, room <laughs> at uh, London Zoo. Well, we did. I remember we, um, we'd finished our finals and the finals were literally next to London Zoo in the building there. And for reasons I won't bore you with, we were going to meet in the insect house in London Zoo and go and basically get drunk and celebrate. I the want end to of know university. the reasons you don't want to bore, you, bore me. Why did you? Why the insect? Oh, it's a room? long, convoluted story, but it was. It seemed like the good place to meet, and, and I happened to be there goes first. In there, everyone well, yeah. away. 
happened to be there first and um, it's quite dark in there and I, I trod on somebody's toe and um, he turned out to work for the World Wildlife Fund as it was then, now the Worldwide Fund for Nature and uh, somehow I talked my way into a job and started the following week um, and it was a small organisation then, only 17 staff or so um, but it's an amazing time to be involved and in the very first week, I was, I was a very shy 21 year old and it was all a bit overwhelming and the first week there was a trustees meeting I remember the um, the director came up to my desk and said, "Hey, Mark, can you take some of the trustees to the railway station? You know, meeting's just finished." But, oh my God, I've got this old Hillman imp that's so embarrassing. There's a hole in the passenger floor had a mat over it. <laughs> and anyway, so I ended up. They taking, come with that, don't they? They do. When you buy them. David Attenborough, David Bellamy, um, David Shepherd, the wildlife artist, and mm-hmm. Peter Scott—all my childhood heroes. I had a shepherd on and, my wall when I was growing oh, up. Yeah. charging elephants coming at me. Oh, he's an amazing man. He did so much for con- they all did so much for conservation. Anyway, and these four guys in my car, and of course we broke down on the way to the station. It's so embarrassing. I still remember David Bellamy and David Shepherd pushing the car, and David Attenborough and Peter Scott telling me to, how to do the gears. I was doing it all wrong, and. That was my introduction. But they all very, very kindly took me under their wings and for many years helped me and introduced me to people and sort of nurtured me, and they were really generous. How long were you with the WWF? I think about six years altogether, and um, then decided to just get more experience and uh, do other things. They lived in various countries around the world and um, just to broaden my horizons a bit. Did you... I mean, did you enjoy working with a orga- uh, conservation organisation? Because you don't do it now, you're freelance. Yeah, now. I did. I, I must admit, I tend to support smaller conservation groups um, these days. The, the big ones can do some great work, but the, the, I think the smaller ones are more specialist, know more about what they're doing in their specialist fields, and more money tends to get to conservation. So I tend to support ones that, you know, things like the Shark Trust or the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust the David Shepherd Wildlife Trust that do very specific things and I think pound for pound they tend to achieve a lot more. Do you think there's a way to get them all to work together to link them oh all God, up? That, that's the holy grail. I think what we're realising that conservation had lots of success stories but it's actually not working properly. Uh-huh. There's so much competition between conservation groups, so little coordination. Um, we definitely need, and I don't know how we're ever going to do it, we need them to combine and work together the ideal scenario is to have fewer so for example all the ones working on rhinos and elephants working together Mm -hmm. or being one and just instead of duplicating effort and chasing after the same funds just become more efficient and have much more coordination i mean in the field you often work in places where you might have three organizations all working in the same national park and um, they don't talk to one another Mm -hmm. we need much more coordination yeah, I, I was talking to a malacologist at the Natural History Museum and she referred to certain species as disco species, which I thought was amazing. Like certain animals that elicit a, a full human-style response, whether it's the Bengal tiger or the African elephant. We want to care about the big, pretty ones, but we don't care, or in her instance, about whelks. You have to use the big, pretty ones as ways in, so you, know, you, you can't run a campaign to get people inspired to protect whelks, but you can run a campaign for something else that lives in their environment and then you if you look at the small print with all these adverts for you know save the tiger save the panda it says and other wildlife yeah. you know it's it's the only way to get people inspired you have to you have to use certain species and certain ways in and if that helps the, the whelk indirectly then that's great <laughs> help save the whelk <laughs> um one of the things that you have done 
one of the huge things that you've done was um, Last Chance to See with Douglas Adams, which at its core was bringing other people to conservation, to natural history, to animals. Um, how, in the first instance, did you get involved with Douglas in doing that? It was an amazing stroke of luck. I, I got asked to basically take various well-known writers um, to look at various conservation projects around the world. And the idea... And this is through the WWF? Yeah. Or, yeah. It, in those days, it was sort of quite new to get celebrities to, you know, front issues like conservation. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time now, which is good. That it's would a good be, way of it. That would be neat right here. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a good thing. It, it, it draws people in. And one of them was to take Douglas Adams, who was really well known for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, had a massive following to Madagascar mm-hmm. to look for this um, rare nocturnal lemur called an eye. And we thought he'd appreciate it being a writer of humorous science fiction. This eye looks like it looks like it's come out of the cargo doors of a spaceship. Mm-hmm. And Douglas described it like it's been made out of bits of other animals. So um, it's got a cat's body and a bat's ears and a beaver's teeth and a. a tail like a squirrel on steroids and mm. eyes like E.T. and this long thin middle finger like a dead twig. Perfect for Douglas. Sure. And we went off to Madagascar and in those days we thought they only lived on this one little island called Nozomangabi. We now know they were hiding in a few other places. And we got to this island, long journey, difficult to travel to Madagascar, around Madagascar in those days. Mm-hmm. Thought we'd be the only ones there and there was a hut with a, an American photographer who'd been sent there by National Geographic living there all, all in his own. He'd been there for three months and his sole job was to photograph an eye in the wild. He hadn't even seen one. Mm-hmm. So we thought, oh, well, we're not going to get to see one ourselves. Anyway, we stayed in the hut with him, half the roof missing, soaking wet, raining all the time. And the first Sounds night, familiar to yeah, our current locale. Very similar. <laughs> um, and the first night he said, oh, it's a waste of time, it's pouring, you, don't, you won't see anything. So we didn't. And the next night we thought, well, we'll go and have a look. 50 yards from the hut, we saw an eye one of the you know, first people in years to see a wild eye-eye when uh-huh. racing back to the hut. Where were the records this guy, before this? Like who? They were, well, they'd been reintroduced to Nozomangabi, so they knew they were there. Uh, okay. Um, and nobody, nobody knew of any other site on the mainland at that time where they lived. Um, they have been discovered in a few other places since. And we told this photographer, and he, his knees buckled, he almost burst into tears, <laughs> and he actually spent another six months on Nozomangabi and never saw an eye-eye. Um, so we thought, oh, we're pretty good at this. Let's uh, let's do some more. Douglas and I got on really well. Completely different people, but we just hit it off. And um, we thought, what we'll do is we'll spend a year travelling around the world looking for endangered species, and then write a book about it, do a radio series. And and as you say, the whole idea was to get a, a different audience. It's all very easy to preach to the converted. But Douglas had this massive following with Hitchhiker, sure. And we could draw people into conservation that way. Amazing. So, I mean, that, that led on from uh, the book to the radio. Um, was there a second book? Have I made that up? Yeah, there was. We, uh, th- then Douglas very sadly died in um, 2001, only 49. It was, it was such a loss. Um, and the plan was to do a return journey. So some years after that, Stephen Fry and I um, went and did a return journey to look for the same species, to meet the same people in many cases who are trying to protect them. And we did a TV series this time and a follow-up book um, to see what had happened in that 20-year gap. And this is when you got sexually abused by a kakapo. I did. By a kakapo called Sirocco, who's... I mean, you can't believe how charismatic kakapo, <laughs> these nocturnal parrots in New Zealand are. They, they look human. Mm-hmm. They are all different characters. Incredibly rare bird. When Douglas and I went, there were 40. Uh-huh. When Stephen and I went back, there were probably three times as many. Now there's about 150-odd. So um, I think the kakapo... 
is the only animal on your last chance to see list that I've actually seen. Oh, have you seen one? I have, but I How was... Um, there's a place now just outside of Wellington called Zealandia. Oh, yes, I know. Where they're trying to sort of... It's like a sort of Jurassic Park-like nature preserve where they're trying to reintroduce the species, yeah. flora and fauna that have gone extinct, and they've got some kakapo roaming oh, wild really? there. But there's also an island just off the coast, which I think is... Codfish. Yeah, yeah. Where there's a an indigenous population of kakapo now. Well, the, the thing what happened in New Zealand is most of the birds there are, are flightless because mm-hmm. there were no predators, and the kakapo flightless as well. Except, what's funny about the kakapo is not only forgotten how to fly, but it's forgotten that it's forgotten how to fly. <laughs> so it'll actually climb up trees and jump uh-huh. and fly like a brick and land in a heap of feathers on the ground. Um, but then when people arrived, they brought with them rats and cats and possums yeah. and all these predators. So all these, uh, they were literally sitting ducks, all these birds. So what they're doing in New Zealand is they're, they're removing all the predators from islands like Codfish Island and then putting the kakapo on them where they're safe and hoping to build up the population. I didn't quite realise until I went there. I mean, I'd heard of the kiwi and I, I knew of the kakapo from your book, actually. And I didn't realise quite how many flightless species of birds... Mm. New Zealand had, or indeed that mammals and uh, weren't on the island until about 600 years ago. That's right. With a few yeah. exceptions of maybe bats and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to to discover the moa, which was one of the largest birds, for I guess well, I mean they're huge. They're about eight uh, eight feet tall, yeah. nine feet tall, um, and would just be flightless, sort of giant ostrichy emu things roaming around. I know because there was nothing out to get them. And well, they uh, had a, there was an, an eagle with something like a five meter wingspan mm-hmm. that was their only predator, mm-hmm. and then mankind turned up and decided to have a go at them. Yeah, and if you're a conservationist in New Zealand, you have to spend most of your time killing things. That's the reality. They're trying to get rid of all these predators that were introduced. Well, I mean, that's an interesting topic. K- killing as a means of conservation, whether it's an invasive alien species or there are, there are trophy hunting sites where you pay to get money into the conservation of the animal that you're there to kill, which is something that I find oh very peculiar. That, I could rant about that for the next hour. The, Go on, the, you've, got, you've got five the... minutes. Go. <laughs> Trophy hunting, the argument is that it's to uh, raise money for conservation. Without trophy hunting, there would be no lions or whatever they're doing. The reality is that a very small number of people make a lot of money out of trophy hunting. And a lot of it, I mean, the worst of it is canned hunting, where they have, they, what they do is they advertise for volunteers to look after baby lion cubs that are orphaned, in inverted commas. These poor volunteers come along, they look after the lion cubs, as they get bigger, they get released into enclosures and then you get typically American hunters coming over and they are driven into the enclosure, driven up to the lion, shoot the lion and the trophies prepared for them to take back home and boast about how brave they are and what they managed to achieve. And it's a complete con. You know, I, I just do not believe that any form of trophy hunting is good. It, it, is, it does raise a lot of money you know, a lot of these hunters will pay tens of thousands of dollars to kill a lion or an elephant um, or a rhino, but the reality is most of that money goes to individuals, not to conservation. I don't understand how that can happen in our modern, in inverted commas, civilised world. I would argue about civilised. Not quite. Mm. Um, with that in mind, um, as we're not too far away from Trafalgar Square, where members of Extinction Rebellion are now being arrested if they so much as have a peaceful protest um, what do you think we can do now to make the world more civilised? 
It's really difficult. I think I think the situation has got is is now so dire, and you just got to look at some of the reports the UN have been publishing recently. You know, two that come to mind immediately: uh, one on climate change, basically saying we've got 11 years to get our act together, or you know, the world will be a very very different place. Um, and another one uh, pointing out that since 1970, we've lost half of all the wild animals on the planet and 1970s not that long ago I mean it's when the Beatles disbanded I was 11 but I still remember it. it's like yesterday in that in that very short so do you space mean of like time, the song yesterday I didn't mean that but yeah <laughs> as I said it I thought are you going to pick me up on that aren't you? <laughs> and you go you're a little precocious <laughs> yeah you're going to um, do it <laughs> yes yes I am <laughs> but um you know we've lost half of all the individual wild animals it's it's we're in the middle of a mass extinction and we're at the stage where individual conservationists and volunteers and passionate people and conservation groups cannot solve it alone uh-huh. that's what we, we all agree now everyone in conservation that it is too big to be solved just with what we've been doing in the past we need governments involved and i think what extinction rebellion is doing very well is whatever you think about their tactics is making it headline news and making politicians aware of it and i think the people who are lagging behind are the politicians Mm -hmm. we have to get governments on board to solve these these problems and you know in the uk we should know better we're supposed to be you know advanced and we've got the money to do these things if we choose to spend it on that and the politicians can sort of see that there are votes in green issues but they still don't get that conservation should be a fundamental part of development does it have to be financial to make them listen does it have to be a benefit well they're obsessed with economic growth i mean the, the reality is things like Brexit are going to pale into insignificance if we don't deal with these issues. It will be the least of our problems, you know, leaving the European Union. Um, and, and they don't get that. And the reality is that there will be no economic growth if we don't tackle things like climate change. And, you know, we, we're, we're, we're riding a wrecking ball through the Earth's biosphere. And if we don't stop that, there will be no finance. There will be no economic growth at all. To link that to a species, do you think there is, if you were to do more Last Chance to See, is there something that you think is going to go extinct very soon because of these current major threats that are escalating? Well, there's species going extinct every day. I mean, out of the eight that we chose fairly arbitrarily, almost like sticking pins in a map, one has gone extinct, the Yangtze River dolphin, and another one, the northern white rhino, is down to the last two females. Yeah. Um, that's pretty shocking. That's a quarter of the eight we picked arbitrarily. And what's scary is that species become extinct before we even know they exist. So uh-huh. the latest estimate, ballpark figure, there's a million species that are teetering on the brink. And a lot of them will go before we even knew they were here. Yeah. Um, well, they, so anna- they announced the discovery of a new, I think it was an ant yesterday, the silver ant in Sahara that can run at 108 times its body length per second. Yeah, it's which mind-boggling. Is mind-boggling. But to discover the fastest uh, scaled species on the planet still only a day ago, or publicly yeah. so, is, is perverse. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's like um, you know, running through a library that's on fire, burning down, and trying to write down the names of all the books that mm-hmm. they'll never be read. It's that sort of thing. It's... Um, it's happening so fast we're not keeping up with recording it let alone stopping it in one of our aborted uh, recording sessions this morning already <laughs> we mentioned how uh, with uh, uh, temperatures rising across the planet how reptiles reproduce the gender according to the heat of it and I spoke to a, a woman at the Olive Ridley project about the very same thing to know that whether it's two female white rhinos or a population of reptiles that doesn't have another 
it has, doesn't have the opposite gender to, to breed with, to realize that the manner in which we are making species extinct is almost comic in its perversity and destructive nature is, is really upsetting, I find. Yeah, and there, was, there are so many problems. I mean, climate change is one that's in the news all the time, and, and a lot of those effects are, on the face of it, quite subtle. But actually, the reality is if you have all one sex obviously it's going to disappear you mm-hmm. can't possibly survive and you know there are subtle things like animals having to move to higher latitudes to get the temperatures that they well, need well that's happening with whales at the moment isn't and it whales well, are shifting changing with... shifting their, their distributions are shifting to try and get the temperature where they get maximum food as the water temperature increases and there's a limit to how much that can happen of course they move if one population moves there they're entering the territory or the, the, the range of another population it has all these knock-on effects many of which we don't understand we just know that particularly in the last I don't know 10 years or so this is happening very rapidly and the fact we don't know is a good reason just to be cautious um, there was uh, someone on Twitter was saying the other day that which just said imagine being the last mammoth just walking around with no one to see nothing to do <laughs> it's just we're getting to that stage with so many of these larger species because larger species, for, for a number of reasons, are going to be the most likely to be mm-hmm. wiped out. More visible to us, certainly, doesn't help, and less easy to adapt more readily. Yeah, and, and you see it. I mean, just in my lifetime, travelling around the world, going to the same places again and again, you see the wildlife disappear. And I think in the UK, you can see it. It's, it's, there's a thing called the shifting baseline syndrome, which basically means that our our standards are dropping so when I was a kid you know when I was like 10 50 years ago uh, living in suburban Hampshire at the time left Luton then you'd run into the garden and grasshoppers would fly up you know by the dozen there'd be cuckoos that'd be the soundtrack mm-hmm. of summer cuckoos calling all summer well you mentioned we'd an be... adder earlier and I can't remember the last time I saw well, an no, adder you don't and I see, see them quite them. often yeah and we'd feed hedgehogs you know there'd be half a dozen hedgehogs on the terrace every evening and now I can't remember when I last heard a cuckoo in southern England. You don't see grasshoppers. We've lost 90% of the hedgehogs since then. And so the, the, the worry is that young kids growing up now, what they see now is their baseline. So they think this is the norm. Mm-hmm. And they see us losing stuff and they think it's bad. But to me, it's a disaster because I'm measuring it differently. And, the, and as each generation comes and goes, our standards drop. And so, you know, my parents' lifetime... Um, when they were kids they'd have known an even richer wildlife sure. and I think the worry is that we're not seeing how serious it actually is. My friend Jill came on your whale trip and came as a family and I think all of them came away with it in, enthused by what they could discover, what they could see and how yeah. to take that story out. In fact one of the reasons why I first approached you was because of the experience that she had with you and it's about those shared experiences which I think take things beyond. Um, You've got your new book coming out soon, The Whales, Porpoises and Dolphins Guide, Master mm-hmm. Guide to <laughs> the Oceans. What are your hopes for that? How do you think that's going to help sort of push these agendas forward? Is it just about well, the knowledge base? It's or? not a conservation book. It's more um, a, an information book on what we know about them. But you've got to... You need information to be able to act. So there is a lot of conservation stuff in there, what the threats are to each species, what the population figures are and so on. But you need a, a basic collection of information to be able to decide what to do next and how to help different species they're all suffering from different things i mean there's there's one called the vaquita which is a a porpoise lives in the gulf of california in mexico and that will almost certainly be extinct by christmas and they're down to they reckon the last 10 um 
and we've known for 20 years what the problem is they get caught in fishing nets and they drown um, but you know we need to, to act on it faster so the hope is that by providing information we can act in time to save other species. I bought a bird book recently um, of Northern Californian birds and they'd included it in a section in the book of extinct species that used to be here. So there was the passenger pigeon and mm -hmm. a few others. I mean, do you have, make space for the species that aren't around? I guess, uh, like, yeah, well, like, like the, the Stella the, the, sea cow and... Um, not that one because it's not a whale or dolphin. <laughs> right, there you go. Um, Manatees but, technically different? Then? Yeah, they're, they're, they're marine mammals, but um, I mean, manatees, there's a group of uh, three different species of manatees. The Sirenia. Yeah. I love dugong. So they're in the Sirenia, and the whales and dolphins in the Cetacea. So different groups, but both marine mammals. Well, the one, one that's in there is the Yangtze River dolphin, which is the mm -hmm. one Douglas Adams and I look for that has now gone. And you can't not put it in. You've got to, you know, you've got to remember that it existed. Yeah. And I've talked about it as I have all the other species. You can't just sort of say, oh, well, it's gone, let's move on. Um, other than being um, shagged, I think, the word that Stephen Fry used by a kakapo, <laughs> um, what, are the other, what, what is a particularly memorable encounter that you've had with one of God's illustrious animals? Well, we had so many. One of the great things about Last Chance to See was we had lots of time, um, and we were, we were having our target species looking for, but on the way we stopped and looked at all sorts of other species as well. Um, but of the target species, one we looked for was the Amazonian manatee, uh -huh. which Douglas Adam described as rather like a listless mud bank. Um, <laughs> and then Stephen described it like a... Uh, not so much like a seal, but like a, a case for carrying a seal in. You know, they're, 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 they're big, uh, blubbery animals, almost round animals, live in the Amazon, water in the Amazon jungle. And um, they fart more than any other animal. They're hilarious. They, they, basically what <laughs> How they do, do they, we know that they fart more than any well, other Well, people animal. study these things. You'd be surprised. <laughs> people have some interesting jobs. Well, I think the most... Um, the most bizarre job in conservation I've ever come across is there's a guy, a Spanish guy, who specialises in, excuse the word, wanking uh, endangered birds of prey. And basically what he does is he has to get the semen from the birds of prey to then artificially inseminate the females to try and breed them in captivity to bring the populations back from the brink. But that's what he specialises so in. So he's the guy? Yeah, so... When he goes to parties, I can't imagine. Be, then what do you do? You How do know. you... Anyway, so people do know that manatees <laughs> fart more than other... So they spend their lives eating, sleeping and farting, and some they just sleep and fart. So that was, it. That was great. And when Douglas and I went, we spent, spent weeks and weeks in the Amazon in this rickety old boat travelling around, and, and um, we, didn't, we don't know whether we saw one or not. And the, the guide who was hopeless said he saw one, and I thought I maybe saw the ripples, and Douglas nearly saw the ripples, so uh -huh. it was almost a tick. This guide, I remember, we'd been on the boat for about a week, and he said, why don't we just get off and have a stretch of legs and go, you know, do a two-hour walk in the jungle. Five days later, we found our way back to the river. We ended up sleeping rough in the jungle, eating piranha fish and heart of palm to survive, and found our way back and got a passing boat and were rescued but do you often get it was lost? hopeless yeah <laughs> <laughs> especially in cities i'm hopeless in even my hometown in bristol I, I i keep forgetting the name of the road at the end of my road i'm not interested whereas in a jungle or out at sea i actually do know my way around much better um we're getting soaked aren't we? we are we're we just going to stand in let's the go and do the cafe a bit okay a little noisier but um at least it's a lot drier. Yes. So please excuse the uh, background noise for the remainder of the interview. Um, yeah, so I was told that you've got a, 
an interesting view on orangutans. <laughs> and I don't know what that is. I don't know what I've just opened up. But I'm going to make myself very unpopular. Orangutans and chimpanzees. Okay. I'm, I know a lot of people love them, and and uh, I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to them. But they're not my favourite animals. They they have a lot of the worst traits of people. You know, they will lie and cheat and steal and bully and rape and in some cases murder and that that's all the worst sides of people so uh-huh. I've never really understood why people go, get so obsessed with them uh, having said that you know I, I, I'm sort of doing it I'm joking in a way because we wouldn't want anything to happen and they're orangs particularly in very serious trouble um, with all the rainforest destruction and hunting Down and everything Borneo. but, but um, it is interesting how people sort of fall in love with a particular animal uh, that wouldn't be one I'd fall in love with but do we, we don't know what... I mean, there was this... Uh, who was it? There was the... Um, I think it was a Dutch scientist who did a paper on the necrophilic homosexual rape of mallards. Yes, I mean, there, there's always a dark yeah. side to a, a lot of things, and it depends how you read it. You know, it's uh, if you look at it from an anthropomorphic point of view, then it's bad, bad, bad. But in the, in the natural world, of course, it's all part of the whole process. Um, so there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Um, I'll wrap it up before anything else can interrupt this <laughs> hell of a morning. First question, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? South Georgia. It's my favourite place. I think um, apart from apart from whale-watching places where you can't walk, mm-hmm. um, South Georgia, this island in the South Atlantic, is, is absolutely mind-boggling. It's about the size of Essex, and uh, it is stuffed full with wildlife such huge quantities so there's one particular beach and this is where i choose called st andrews and you land on the beach and if you go there in november which is sort of peak season you'll pick your way through five thousand elephant seals and there'll be fur seals chasing you and all sorts of other stuff you walk along the beach you turn a corner and there's a valley and this valley is stuffed full with hundreds of thousands of king penguins all standing shoulder to shoulder talking to one another and there'll be albatrosses flying overhead, and there'll be whales out in the bay, and it's absolutely Why did you first go place. there? Probably uh, early 90s. I've been going there for years and um, spending weeks exploring the place. St Andrews is probably the most impressive. There are other amazing beaches like it, but it's just the sheer number. Uh-huh. And you can sit... I mean, I've seen so many people go to South Georgia for the first time, and they stand on that beach and just burst into tears. Nobody knows what... You can't say anything, you can't put it into words everyone just looks and think oh my god how do you absorb all this your uh-huh. brain can't can can't compute it all well i'm sold <laughs> um second question actually i'll ask you an extra one because i'm thinking of changing no, you're this only question. Allowed two more. Yeah. um okay should we colonize the seas um no we should keep we, we're doing enough damage to the sea already just looking at the threats to whales and dolphins you know we've got we're overfishing um, taking out far more fish than, than the resources can cope with. Two-thirds of all the world's fish stocks are either overfished or right up to the limit. Mm-hmm. Um, we're polluting it with noise. We've got all these huge ships. We've got uh, pile driving for wind farms. We've got uh, military sonar. What about the possibility of wave power being a power source that would be less destructive to the environment? 
and making offshore. Yeah, it depends where, of course. Um, you know, places where they're they're, they're um, looking at wave power as a potential source are actually really important wildlife sites as well. It's a, it's a, it's a catch twenty two. If you can pick the right spots, then yes, of course, the more we can do wave power and wind power, there's always going to be some disturbance. But you've just got to pick the right areas and minimise the disturbance. Anything's better than than uh, burning fossil fuels. Sure. Um, and, and the other threats are, you know, fishing nets. Um, 300,000 whales and dolphins drown in fishing nets every year. We're disturbing the coastlines. Um, there, there's so much harm to the oceans. I would, I would hate it if we start inhabiting the oceans as well. So that's a big no. Yes. <laughs> um, and final question, if you could bring, and, and probably the most fitting question for any guest so far, is if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? It would be the Yangtze River dolphin. Uh-huh. If we could bring it back, we'd have to solve all the problems. One of the one of the great issues, of course, is that if you could wave a magic wand and bring it back, then would it just go extinct again? I mean, the Yangtze River in China is a is a sort of microcosm of all the threats you could possibly imagine. That it's about ten percent of the human population lives in the Yangtze River basin. Uh-huh. You've got overfishing and too much shipping traffic and hunting and development and everything, pollution, everything you can think of. So the, the dream would be to bring the Yangtze River dolphin back to a safe Yangtze River that's safe for it to live in. I mean, that's the question about these kind of sort of reintegration projects, survival projects, even a recreation of mammoth projects like things. The argument of whether they've had their time, how much effort should be put into these enterprises... It's what are we bringing them back to do? If we're just bringing them back to die again, it's yeah. I mean, this is a great argument with the northern white rhino because they they um, are, are basically doing space age reproductive techniques to try and bring that back. So you've got two females left, and they've got the semen from males that have now died. Mm-hmm. This has been harvested by a friend of the guy from Mexico who takes birds of prey's semen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. His brother. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that's great if you can bring it back by um, using a southern white rhino as a surrogate and all this complicated stuff, but none of the original problems, which are war and poverty and poaching, have gone. Uh So you bring it back to this world where it's going to be at risk straight away. The mammoth's an interesting one because it's a convoluted story, but if we can, and there's a possibility, clone a mammoth and bring mammoths back, Mm -hmm. then um, there's a really interesting project in Siberia where they feel that the mammoths can then be used to prevent the melting of the permafrost. One of the great problems oh, wow. in the Arctic is um, with warming temperatures, the permafrost is melting, and that has massive repercussions for the whole ecosystem. Uh-huh. But they think that mammoth grazing is, is really complex um, story. But they think that if there were enough mammoths, they would actually help to slow down the melting of the permafrost. Well, it's the same argument with having uh, rare-breed cattle or small holdings looking after natural England's land. There are natural ways to make a habitat be thrived. I didn't know about the permafrost, though. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, there are so many possibilities with all these things and so much work being done on it. Fascinating. If we can ever do it, I don't know. It's going back to something that we said in a previous life um, about keystone species disappearing and only knowing what we've lost as a result. I had never even considered the possibility that the disappearance of the mammoth would have an effect upon uh, the Arctic permafrost. Yeah, well, this is is why we don't know what role so many species have. Uh We're talking about the pick-a-stick game, you know, you remove one species, who would have thought that maybe it would have an impact on the permafrost, or it might have an impact on every other species, or another species, or 
the ecosystem as a whole. I mean, this is the this is the worry. We it's like driving in the dark, and yet we the the, the, the more damage we do, the faster we're driving. We uh-huh. we don't know what we're doing. So, other than your book, what's next? Lots of conservation work. Spending a lot more time um, campaigning for one of my big passions at the moment is badger culling. Mm-hmm. Um, Join the club. And I think it's, uh, I'm going to put a lot of time into that. I think it's absolutely outrageous what we're doing with badger culling. You know, we, we criticise countries like Japan for whaling, but in our own country, we're killing tens of thousands of badgers yeah. under a false pretense. With no scientific evidence. Absolutely no scientific it. evidence. I mean, obviously, what, what's happening is they're culling the badgers to try and control bovine tuberculosis in cattle, which is a big problem for farmers. Mm-hmm. But it's not helping anybody. Thirty years of research proves that it's not going to solve the problem. Um, it's not going to help the farmers. Not going to. Number of cattle being slaughtered is actually increasing, and yet they're expanding this cattle, this badger, badger culling program. It just went any up a month whatsoever. ago, where they increased it again. I saw. I, know. I think it's absolutely outrageous, and um, it's all they're doing is using the badger as a scapegoat to make the farming community think they're doing something. Uh-huh. Mark, there's so much I want to ask you. Um, we haven't even got on to, to whale culling and Faroe Islands. There's so much I this. wanted to rant about. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to get you back on the podcast at some point. If people want to know more about you, you have a website, which is... Uh, MarkCarwardine.com. Um, and if they want to come whale watching, you... It's all on there as well. Great. Hopefully you'll come one day as well. I... Oh, please. <laughs> please. Thank you very much, and thank you for putting up with an incredibly taxing morning of locations. dry off. <laughs> thank you. I'm indebted to Mark for his patience as much as for his sharing of his brilliance, so thank you, Mark. And as mentioned, his book of whales, dolphins and porpoises is out now. It's incredible, and you'll find a link on our website along with my usual blog. As always, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. Tell your friends about us, and if you're in Wigtown on Friday, hopefully I'll see you at The Open Book. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.